What is up, y'all? Kevin Kuhn here from Athlete Factors. This is the Athlete Factors podcast. My guest today is Stephen Maycheck. How you doing today? Good. How you doing? Very well. Very well. Thank you. So uh, the quick synopsis of why you're on today is to talk about some new research within the realm of powerlifting. So uh, I guess take it away. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you're a PhD student, so tell us a little bit about that. And um, yeah, your personal, your uh, your athletic background, your academic background, and all that. Sure, I'd love to. Um, so yeah, like you said, I'm a, I'm a third-year PhD student at Baylor University. I'm working under uh, Dr. Darren Willoughby. Um, and uh, I, I initially got into exercise science um, because I was, I was actually an overweight kid. So I was an overweight kid and I was kind of tired of, you know, kind of the stigma behind that. So I wanted to make a change. Um, so I, I started, you know, losing weight the way that, that uh, everyone wants you to lose weight, which is to, to run a whole bunch and, and starve yourself, which I, <laughs> didn't turn out very well. Um, but in the process of it, I learned all the things that I was doing wrong and I learned about nutrition. And so I decided to do my, uh, my bachelor's degree at San Francisco State University in dietetics. Um, fast forward like four years, something like that. Um, I, uh, if, if you know anything about dietetics, you apply for an internship after you've completed the four years. And I didn't get in the first time. Um, and one of my main weaknesses was that I uh, didn't have much clinical experiences. The clinical stuff has, has never been my forte. So I had a couple of different options. One is to get more clinical experience. The other is to go ahead and do a master's of something that would help complement um, kind of your interests. And, and I was the, uh, I guess, the founding member of the uh, sports nutrition subcommittee in the, in the General Dietetics Association. Mm-hmm. So I'd always had a, a really interesting passion that I had developed um, for resistance training and specifically powerlifting. That was the lens that I found was the most interesting. Um, after doing resistance training for about a year, I just realized that I really enjoyed the powerlifting movements. Um, and so I decided to do a master's in exercise physiology and I worked under Dr. Jimmy Bagley, also at San Francisco State University. And after doing that for a while, um, I realized that I really enjoyed the, the research aspect of a whole lot. Um, and I can talk about my, my thesis too at some point is actually kind of similar in the sense of some of the research we're going to be talking about, where we looked at uh, an elite powerlifter, a middle-aged powerlifter who had been doing anabolic steroids for several decades, and we looked wow. at his myonuclear domain. Um, I can talk about that kind of stuff and his fiber type. It was really, really interesting work. Um, and I also realized that um, the research aspect also gave me an outlet or, or acted kind of like a, a filter to, to hang out with some people that had some really similar interests. Mm. Uh, so after graduating there, I decided that I wanted to do my PhD, um, and I wanted to do something that could kind of synergistically employ the nutrition and the exercise components, because I don't know if you've been to too many universities uh, and seen those individual departments, but usually they don't have curriculum that intersect very well. Mm. They generally tend to stay very separate, at least that was my experience. So I wanted something that kind of encompassed the whole experience. Um, so that's why I reached out and I eventually found Dr. Willoughby, uh, who does a lot of research, obviously, in resistance training, um, but also has a huge emphasis on the, the dietary supplements or nutritional interventions that I, I think are really neat. I really think that finding these minute mechanisms behind these different things is such a cool way to go about researching some of these supplements. 
you know, I'm, obviously the, the industry takes advantage of that, but some of these things actually have some, some space to work and uh, they can end up being really novel and really cool. So um, I think that's, I, I guess, I guess the last part I'd like to talk about is the powerlifting. So I, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I have been powerlifting, I'm not great at it. I'm, I'm very mediocre at it, but I think that's why I've pursued a lot of, of trying to learn about it and trying to research about it is just because it gives me uh, another outlet to, to kind of convey that passion. So um, I, I coach some powerlifting in, in my spare time. Um, I basically try to get everyone that I, uh, I meet that becomes my friend into powerlifting, got my <laughs> wife into powerlifting. Nice. Um, my best man at my wedding was, uh, was I met through powerlifting. And it's, uh, it's just been a, uh, a, a big passion of mine that I've been trying to, to feed forward to people whenever I meet them. So, yeah. That's awesome. Well, it's, uh, it's a fun sport to watch. Uh, Debatably. <laughs> Well, I've never competed, but I've I've seen some, you know, some some meets or some competitions, and um, it it can be very very entertaining. I mean, yeah, not at bench. least people usually leave during bench to go to lunch. <laughs> I've seen. Granted, this was, and we kind of mentioned this earlier, the Arnold, um, before we started recording. But I I remember seeing uh, a guy just gushing blood from his nose. Yeah. hitting hitting a world record squat so yeah. you know it's stuff like that that that'll that'll pique your interest yeah deadlift and squat really get people <laughs> going you know you start to see the, the faces turn purple and and uh oh man people people puking you ever see that people puking uh as actually deadlift. yeah yeah oh, i've yeah. never seen it in person but the the urination aspect is really common <laughs> uh, i remember the first time i was i was watching a powerlifting meet and then it was, it was straight stream of urine forward and the great thing is is that uh the person that was lifting that weight like they didn't care they they were getting that lift that third attempt deadlift and she was just as stoked after getting that and that was yeah. that was really neat i don't know how she would have acted if she hadn't have gotten it but <laughs> i mean we act like that doesn't happen in other sports oh it yeah. does i was just listening to i can't remember who was talking it was a uh, it was another um as an article or something like that about the rates of urinary incontinence and in certain women's in certain sports and it was those numbers were mortifying so it happens yeah I mean, just you know sometimes that uh that no intra-abdominal pressure just gets uh gets to yeah. a point where <laughs> yeah and no, one, no one talks about it either so yeah well I will not be conducting research in that area in the future. No, yeah, I think that's <laughs> beyond my scope. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome. So, uh, let's uh, let's get into into this article that that was just recently published. Um, so, tell us a little bit about it. Uh, the the title actually I found extremely interesting, but just because it took me back to um, to neuromuscular exercise physiology class with mm-hmm. Dr. Willoughby. You know, we were learning all about uh, myosin heavy chain isoforms and um, different uh, muscle fiber types and things like that. So, talk us through that a little bit, and and we'll kind of jump into into this uh, this research article. Sure. So the the general premise was um, kind of like as a powerlifter myself, I don't have a huge focus around. Uh, I'm interested isn't necessarily biomechanically related. I've always had a kind of a general affinity towards more of the cellular stuff. Um, and so 
I know a lot of papers papers have been published that talk about um, a lot of the predictors for powerlifting performance. So whether that be um, certain leverages, so like brachial index, how long your arms are, or how long your torso is. Um, there's a lot of papers that kind of look at that stuff, but nothing that's really trying to examine at the molecular level, what are some of the predictors that we can find? Um, and like I said, I had done my, my master's thesis on fiber type, and that was part of it. And so what I wanted to see was what are the, the main molecular predictors? So I was thinking about some of the main characteristics or main adaptations that resistance training and specifically powerlifting can impart. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wanted to see which one of these things can actually predict powerlifting performance specifically related to the Wilkes coefficient, which is um, for anyone that's not familiar with it, it's a normalized score based on the total amount that people are lifting. So their best squat, their best bench press and their best deadlift. And then they normalize that to, uh, to the person's body weight. So obviously if, if you have an entire uh, meet of people, the person that is the biggest, because there's that linear relationship with how large someone is to a certain degree, how much they can lift, um, that then it would just end up with the biggest person essentially being able to lift the most, or at least the larger people being able to lift more than the smaller people. So this is a really good way to, to kind of normalize that um, so that how, how well can this person lift relative to how big they are as a person? And I think it's just as cool to be able to see someone who's 70 kilos lifting, um, you know, like a, like a 15, 1600 pound total than um, like a 120 kilo guy lifting 2000 pounds plus. Mm -hmm. So that was the, the general impetus behind the reason why we did that. Uh, that particular study. I don't know if that answered your question in particular. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So um, let's let's jump into, uh, I guess, some of the specifics. Um, uh, for people who aren't really familiar with kind of any of any of that sort of thing, um, theoretically, uh, can you talk a little bit about the different? fiber types and what in at least in theory would be more beneficial for powerlifting? Sure. Yeah. So I think most people will know that there are slow twitch fibers and there are fast twitch fibers, um, type ones and type twos respectively. Um, and when we try to relate those to performance or some of the, the characteristics inherent to them, we know that type ones are slow twitch. So they, they typically will um, be more conducive towards kind of low intensity, long duration types of activities. So your quintessential endurance runner, marathon runner, um, that type of individual, because you those those fibers are characterized by more mitochondria, larger mitochondria, uh, more capillary density for more gas exchange to be able to get more oxygen into the mitochondria. That more boring oxidative stuff. Yeah, exactly. That's the <laughs> stuff that I don't like. Exactly. Uh, and then there's the fast twitch stuff. Now that's the fun stuff. That's... Uh, that's where we tend to start to associate higher intensity, shorter duration types of activities. So powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting, um, sprinting, uh, sprinting. Yeah, those are your your kind of quintessential, uh, very high intensity, short duration types of things. Um, and those are characterized by having you know a more uh, intricate network when it comes to the T tubule system for generating action potentials to go down and a larger sarcoplasmic reticulum. Um, so better capacity for calcium handling in that regard. Uh, and then typically we have a, a larger amount of the contractile elements in, in type 2 fibers. So we're talking about uh, actin and myosin for a lot of that specific tension development um, because that's where we know a lot of that, that, uh, that actual cross-bridging is happening with the, the sliding filament theory. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, I mean, that, that's encompassing type ones and type twos. Um, but I think if you go a step further, you know that there's type two A's and there's type two X's. Um, and we, we have this spectrum. It's, it's a spectrum that's ever evolving. We have the type ones on the slow side. We have type two X's that are on the very opposite end, very fast. And then we have type two A's that exist kind of more so in the middle that represent, um, fibers that are fast twitch, but also oxidative at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and with with different developments of techniques, and I, I don't know if I'm going to get a little ahead of myself here, there's different ways to measure fiber type. Um, so we have histochemistry where we can actually stain for myosin ATPase, which is the, the enzyme that's actually on the myosin head that can actually cleave and, and, uh, and utilize, uh, cycle through that ATP. Um, so we have, we have that method, we can stain for that and we can basically subjectively look at these fibers and see, well, this one's darker. That one must be a a type one. That one's uh, pretty much white. That one must be a a type two X or a type two A. Um, and I pause you for a second. Yeah, go for it. This part is not relevant to the conversation at all. However, I think it's extremely like I'm, I'm going to, it's going to be stuck in my head. Have you ever heard anyone call it at pace because yeah. that bugs me yeah it's, ATPase. Uh, can yeah. we all just agree that it's atpas yeah i mean <laughs> i i hope we could <laughs> it's atpas thank you for saying yes. that yeah i'm glad i didn't mess up so <laughs> if i say something that you're like oh, is he saying that right just let me know that way i can correct myself after the fact <laughs> awesome Everything's sounded really good so far. So okay, I didn't mean to jump in there and no, cut no, you you're off. Good. You're good. So, um, yeah, I hope I didn't stop you mid mid thought. I can't. I can't. It just jumped into my head, and I was like, I have to have to get this out. So you're good. Um, let's see. So in theory, it's going to be better for power lifters to be more towards that type 2a or maybe even type type 2x end of the yeah, spectrum so, so that's that's a, a really good portion that i was I'm, I'm trying to get to as well as the uh the idea that especially when i because i teach undergraduate x phys uh, to a certain degree so i teach the lab and i also teach a little bit of the lecture i'm, I'm working my way in to try to teach the lecture because they don't really let us do that all that much mm-hmm. um but i i always ask people because i want to see where their opinions are so if you if you look at the spectrum, you would assume that someone like an Olympic weightlifter, someone like a sprinter, you would want the fastest possible um, fiber type, right? So you'd want the phenotype that can contract the fastest. But what we're actually seeing is that with 2X fibers, number one, 2X fibers are extremely rare, like less than typically an, an athletic population uh, or popu- the, the general population will have less than 5%, less than 2% of pure type 2X fibers. Wow. The problem is with with 2x fibers for athletic populations is that they they are so fatigable, so they they fatigue so fast um, that they're they're not really relevant for for actual activity, right? Mm-hmm. So they can generate a whole lot of force and they can generate it really fast. They are still the fastest uh, force generating. They have the most power, right? So force times times velocity. They have the, the best ability to generate that force fast, but they fatigue so fast that they can't maintain that force over time. So the two A's are actually where we start to see a lot of, of uh, uh, the power athletes starting to shift their, their fiber types towards, if we look at this spectrum. 
So basically, it, there, there are two real athletic fiber types. There's type 1s and there's type 2As. Uh, and basically, depending on the intensity um, of, the, uh, of the exercise, it's going to, to deviate one way or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you want me to talk about hybrid fiber types or if you know anything about hybrid fiber types. Go for it, man. Okay. So, so there's the, the methods that I was talking about. There's immunohistochemistry where we can look at the myosin ATPase. Uh, and then we have homogenate SDS page. Um, I mean, as a side note, you can also look at other things like different enzymes uh, using those staining techniques. But for the most part, for the sake of immunohistochemistry, it's ATPase. Um, and then we have homogenous SDS page or homogenous sodium decyl sulfate polyacrylamide gel electrophoresis. I say that, I try to say <laughs> that every single time that I say the word SDS page because otherwise I'm, I'm going to forget it. But it's a tongue <laughs> Um Where basically what you do is you take the muscle, you grind it up, you put it into this this machine that basically uses an electronegative current to push the proteins. And you can separate the proteins out into bands and then quantify the proteins based on the molecular weight. Mm -hmm. So you can look at the percentage in a given sample, how much of this is type ones, how much of this is type twos, and how much of this is type two, type two A's or type two X's. Mm -hmm. So the, the good thing about that uh, is that we can get a more quantitative look at it, a more objective look at the fiber types or at least the composition of, of, of this entire thing, how much is how much of the space is being taken up by 2As, type 1s, 2Xs. Mm -hmm. The good thing about the, the staining was that we could individually look at all these different fibers, and we could actually differentiate between the, uh, the three different fiber types, but also we, we could see that there were some, some fibers that didn't necessarily align with the, the paradigm, so that it was like we have white, we have black, but what about different shades of gray, right? Like what do we actually classify classify those as? Mm -hmm. And so my my master's advisor, Dr. Bagley, and, and a lot of Dr. Galpin's work uh, has been looking at the the single fiber level. Um, so what they do is you'll you'll take this this big biopsy and then you'll individually pick out these fibers kind of like you would pick out noodles of spaghetti that are kind of bundled up together. And what you can do is you can take those individual fibers, put them in, and do the same gel electrophoresis technique, that same SDS page technique. And what they actually uh, they can see is we have we have the classical um, spectrum or continuum of type ones, type two A's, and type two X's. But we also have isoforms that exist in between. So we have type one slash two A's. We have type two A two X's that exist here. We even have type one two A two X's. So they have all three. Or one of my uh, one of the guys that, that I was doing my my master's with, he was working with end stage renal disease patients and, and trying to do um, resistance training with them. And he was one of the only people that ever saw type one two X's. So it's 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 less of a spectrum. It's kind of more like a circle, honestly, where we have um, shifts that are occurring and sometimes like kind of arbitrary shifts where. Uh, it, it doesn't seem like it's it's along the continuum, but we have some that actually represent like disease states. Mm -hmm. So the only time that we ever really see two X fibers is with people like spinal cord injury. Those are where we actually see like the, the pure type two X's. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, there was one instance where there was a, an elite sprinter who had like 25% or something like that, but that's one person. Mm -hmm. um, and then the hybrids, I think the one main thing I want to get across about the hybrids is the hybrids exist because they are... Um, they are kind of there because they want to differentiate. So they're not really good at anything, but once you start training, they will transition one direction or the other. 
So if I have 20% uh, type 1, 2 A's, the hybrid in between, and I start doing aerobic training, they're going to start shifting towards that type 1. If mm -hmm. I start doing resistance training, they're going to start shifting towards the two A's. Um, and we, we have that on a spectrum. So we can assume sometimes if we have someone who has a, a percentage of type 1s and percentage of two A's, if that person's uh, two A's, the, they might shift if he starts to do or she starts to do more aerobic types of activity. And they'll go through that spectrum. They'll go from two A's to one two A's and then to ones eventually if the training stimulus is robust enough or long enough. Mm -hmm. that sense yeah that was that whole idea like learning that um that that was a possibility where you can you know you can shift some of your muscle fiber type uh one way or the other depending on you know the specific training stimulus was extremely interesting to me um when we started learning about this when i was in grad school um and it was kind of around this time where like some of the questions that that you know, you're asking in, in this study, like right. we, we've been thinking about for a while, but, um, you know, like, uh, at the time we all assumed like, oh, well, you know, if you want to be extremely explosive, if you want to be, um, if you want to exert the most amount of force, then you want to shift as far as you can towards type two X. Right. Um, so it's super interesting to me that, uh, like that's maybe actually not super accurate just because um, and, and like now thinking about it, like it makes sense, like, because in order for that, that shift in any sort of fiber type to occur, it has to be based off a of training stimulus and in athletics or in any sort of uh, sporting type training, like it, it always comes back to, a specific level of conditioning mm -hmm. and repetitive bouts mm -hmm. of, of training, right? So that's going to shift things towards a little bit more towards that type 2A position right. or the aerobic, you know, the aerobic side, the type 1. So I think, and that's really interesting stuff. Yeah, I, I guess one thing I should note is that those those hybrids are pretty much the first thing to start to go. So mm. some people genetically have more hybrids than others, and that's where they're going to start to differentiate. Um, the next level is going to be those two A's to two X's. They're they're innervated by the same motor neuron, so they're they're both alpha one motor neurons. So some of those phenotypical changes that can occur are a little bit, at least in my mind, they're a little bit easier because we're still working with the same motor neuron. Um, but when it comes to type ones to type two A's, it's possible. It's just harder for that change to happen over time. It needs a, a more robust stimulus. Um, and with humans in general, I mean. We can look at animals all day. We can look at animals from birth till death, but we know that animals don't even express the same fiber types as they express different fiber types. Mm -hmm. um, so in humans, it's not it's not ethical to take a baby, you know, and and look at their fiber type over the years. That's not ethical. But um, some of those changes we don't know for sure is where I'm trying to go with that, especially when it comes to some of the the higher intensity stuff. We have a lot of a literature that's looking at the aerobic end of things, but when it comes to how different athletes respond from the power side of things uh, were very heavily under-researched in that regard. Gotcha. Another interesting thing that I think is, I guess, at least somewhat relevant is uh, like the function or the purpose of specific muscles. You know, some are a little bit more, let's say, locomotive, 
yeah. some some are a little more postural right so uh or i think some people call call them tonic and phasic mm. um right so you know uh postural muscles you probably want a little more towards that aerobic side because right. they've got to work all the time um whereas you know these the these prime movers let's let's say the glutes quads hamstrings calves uh you want those muscles to be able to exert a lot more force. Definitely. Uh, so I think, you know, there's, uh, can you talk a little bit about, about the, the different, let's say percentages of, uh, the different fiber types within different muscle groups? Yeah. I mean, I think some of the classic stuff, like you already talked about with postural muscles, primarily being uh, type one fibers because of the, the nature of, of how often we're using them. They need to be oxidative. They also, uh, they need to turn over a little bit more because we're using them more constantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like the, the gastroc being more, being more fast twitch, things like the slow, soleus being more, more slow twitch. Um, and the reason that we actually use the, the vastus lateralis more often than not is not only because it's a good indicator of, of leg function, so we can look at that, we can determine, you know, what's the relationship with activities of daily living and, and ambulatory activity, things like that, but also because it, it's generally about a 50-50-ish. Um, it, it generally represents about like a 40-60, something like that. So it gives us a good idea of where fiber types are going because it, we know that that particular muscle can respond really well, um, can respond really well to training. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we use the, the VL. I mean, over time for biopsies. Yeah. I should have qualified that. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are other muscles that we've used for biopsies before, not me and our lab personally, but, um, I've heard of, of calf biopsies, which sounds miserable. Um, yeah, sounds miserable. I've even heard of trap biopsies. If if you've ever seen that before. I have not. Yeah. So there's some (laughs) research, some lines of research that have actually looked at, um, uh, so the traps actually have a higher androgen receptor content. So if you look at um, like anabolic steroid research, I think it was, I think it was uh, Cotty in 1988. I think it was something like it was Cotty or Erickson, one of those those main researchers that were looking at powerlifters who were taking anabolic steroids. Um, and so they used they did a trap biopsy and and looked at uh, the androgen receptor content in there and the fiber types there. Um, and I can't remember what the fiber type was specifically. Um, but one thing that makes sense to me is that, you know, the traps are because of that androgen receptor content, they're probably going to be more susceptible to hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. If we were going to have a particular fiber type in the traps, we would want the one that probably is a little bit more plastic to growth. So we would probably have a, a higher 2A content there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I don't know if that answered your question. But. No, that's that's very interesting. Yeah. That's cool stuff. You usually um, get sidetracked with things that are cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> This is so awesome, man. This like this literally takes me back to to grad school. I love it. Like, yeah. So well, fun. I mean, I'm there. So like, I'm just, I'm just. Uh, you're living vicariously through me. I've been in grad school for you know the last uh, five years, pretty much. So that's awesome. So you said you're. Uh, this is again a little bit off topic, but uh, you said you're a third year. Yeah, I'm third year. So I'm. So I just. How much is my- left? 
So I was told that I could finish it in uh, in May, but um, like we're we're expecting my wife's pregnant and she's due in, mm. in February. So um, awesome. I have that, and then I'm trying to get all of that done by May and apply for jobs. And money is not very uh, so like funding opportunities are a little bit more sparse nowadays because of the the the, the pandemic and. Mm-hmm. Um, all those things just kind of led me to want to, to push it off for another year. So mm-hmm. the objective for me is to get my dissertation done, uh, pretty early next semester. And then I can just spend pretty much an entire year just milking out the writing, <laughs> waiting for money to come, in, to come in, <laughs> applying to jobs and being able to actually sit down and not write it up in a night, you know, cause yeah. I mean, that's pretty much what I would if I, I've already missed the point to apply by now because most of them are over in October. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's actually kind of like a weight off my shoulders because I was trying to deal with writing up a proposal for my dissertation. Um, also trying to, we're doing pilot work right now for, for the dissertation. Mm-hmm. Um, I can talk about that later too, if that's something that you're interested in. For sure. um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So trying to get all that done and trying to, to uh, apply for jobs, it just sounds like so much. <laughs> horrible that's so crazy man well it's good that you have some time that you don't have to rush it that's kind of nice yeah yeah I feel kind of bad because I know that I know that my wife wants to get out of here and I want to I want to move on too, honestly Mm -hmm. um but it's it's good to be able to I'm comfortable like you know it's I've gotten the motions down I know what (laughs) day-to-day kind of kind of thing looks like over here Um, so just having a little bit of time to kick back, even if there's, if I'm kicking back with a baby screaming in the background, I mean, that's fine. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. You know, (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome. Yeah. So, uh, we've talked a little bit about, um, kind of muscle fiber typing. Um, and we've touched a little bit on, uh, bioenergetics, but can you give us a little bit of a primer? Uh, with regards to the different bioenergetic systems, just because um, I think that's going to play an important role in in discussing a little bit more of your research. Sure, yeah. Um, So from the perspective of some students who have probably taken some of these kind of rudimentary exercise physiology classes, um, we have our our phosphagen system or our creatine phosphate, adenosine triphosphate system, ATP-CP system, um, immediate pathway is another another way that we talk about that, um, which is basically just the the system that we use to turn to recycle ATP really quick from creatine phosphate. So when we break down ATP, we have uh, inorganic phosphate and ADP. So that creatine phosphate can then, for lack of a better term, lend that phosphate over to the ADP and and give us more ATP to work with. Um, so we have that. We have the glycolytic system. So um, both of those the the immediate and the glycolytic system we would kind of consider to be our our anaerobic system so we don't need oxygen to to utilize them Um, and uh, overall the reactions are are much faster as well so with glycolysis we can take advantage of glycogen that's already stored within the in the muscle cell uh, per se and then we can create ATP a a very small amount relative to the aerobic systems that I'll start talking about Um, but we can derive ATP from that and then we can also derive lactate so we can convert pyruvate into lactate, uh, which we can't use as a fuel necessarily right there within the, the fast twitch fibers that are probably utilizing the system. Um, but what we can do is we can shuttle that out with, uh, with hydrogen ions that are the breakdown product of ATP hydrolysis. 
and then we can shuttle those to, to uh, oxidative tissues like the heart, um, the slow twitch muscle, the brain, where we can actually reconvert that back to pyruvate. And then I guess that segues really nicely into the aerobic systems um, that typically use oxygen or do use oxygen. We, we are able to, to take glucose um, and fat in many cases with a lot of the, the longer duration, lower intensity type of stuff. And we can yield a, a heck of a lot more ATP from that. Um, the, the downside is that it just takes a little bit of time for that oxygen to, to perfuse. It takes a little bit of time from, uh, for the oxygen to go from the ambient air to your lungs, to the blood, to the, the given tissue that is demanding that oxygen. Um, mm -hmm. so the, the anaerobic systems are especially important for kind of the beginning of exercise where we're trying to kick on exercise, but they're also really beneficial for the, the higher intensity types of exercise where that ATP demand is, uh, um, I guess, overcoming or exceeding our ability to meet uh, ATP production through oxidative means. Gotcha. So I've always found it uh, really interesting and maybe uh, uh, at least initially I thought it was very convenient. Perhaps now it's not so, uh, it's an, perhaps it's an oversimplification, right? So we've got three muscle fiber types and we've got three main bioenergetic systems right so my at least my initial understanding was oh this is simple the you know the atp pc system lines up with type 2x yeah and then the <laughs> i wish it were that convenient wouldn't that be nice an anaerobic <laughs> glycolysis type 2a and then the oxidative boom type yeah. one yeah. done not so simple, but uh, <laughs> there is, however, some overlap with, I guess, those systems, right? So, yeah, so that being said, um, when it comes to, uh, we got to bring it back to powerlifting. Oh, so yeah. what's the bioenergetic system that we're trying to um, leverage or take advantage of the most when it comes to powerlifting? Right. Right. So I guess I should start off by saying that it, it, all the energy systems are always active. It's just a, a uh, an emphasis on one more than the other, given the, this particular type of activity or or how long that activity is, the intensity of that to at that activity. So typically powerlifting, if we're talking about the uh, the competitive aspect of powerlifting, for the most part, they're going to be uh, in the one RM percentage range of anywhere between like low uh, or high 80s, low 90s, all the way up to, you know, 102, 106% of someone's previous 1RM. Sometimes, you know, if, if someone's extremely new, you can kind of surpass that range. Um, but for the most part, the, the length of an individual maximal attempt isn't going to surpass the capacity of the ATP-CP system or the phosphagen system. So it's going to be probably less than 10 seconds, 15 seconds, and that's usually where people say is is uh, the limitations of the, the the phosphagen system is it lasts anywhere between five and 15 seconds. You might be able to eke out a little bit more if you're you naturally have a little bit more, or if you take like creatine supplementation to to augment your stores. Mm -hmm. um, so so I guess when I was talking or or trying to to rationalize this for the study. It wasn't so much that we were trying to say that, well, powerlifters are going to be exceeding the need on that system while they're, they're in their meets, per se. 
but it, it's interesting to see if if that the total amounts of of uh, cretin phosphate that are inherent to the individual might be a better predictor. So, like genetically, do they have more cretin phosphate, and does that potentially augment the training that they've done to that point to get them so that they have a higher Wilkes coefficient? The relationship there, mm-hmm. or um, is creatine phosphate or the creatine levels that you have, does that relate towards the uh, overall training capacity? Because not every training set that you have is going to be under 15 seconds. A lot of these are going to be, you know, three, five rep sets, sometimes upwards of six, maybe 10, depending on what you're doing in a particular training block. You're mm-hmm. not only going to be taking advantage of the, the immediate pathway, you're going to be taking advantage of glycolysis. And then what are you taking advantage of during your rest periods? You're taking advantage of, you know, you're taking advantage of aerobic systems. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Um, But the idea too is that um, with a lot of powerlifting training, you're taking things submaximally. So you are, you're in a a certain percentage range, but you're not going to failure in a lot of these sets, especially not with uh, the, the, the main movements that you're doing, the competition movements. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that if you told me to take, you know, 75% of deadlifts and take it to failure, I would tell you, I'm probably not going to do that because I'm going to mess something up in my back, especially if I'm experienced enough to, um, to remember what 75% feels like that I wouldn't be able or wouldn't want to, to take that for, uh, as many reps as possible or to failure just for safety reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that, that kind of references me back to one of the studies that I referenced in my, my introduction where they looked at, um, equivalent load. So they looked at a leg press. So it's not, it's not a one-to-one here, but they looked at leg press and they saw that there was a higher depletion of creatine phosphate um, when they had submaximal or they, they didn't go to failure rather than when they took all of those sets to failure. So same load, one didn't go to failure. One had a, a set number of reps. The other went to failure. The one that didn't go to failure utilized more cretin phosphate. So I'm thinking hmm. powerlifters are probably putting a little bit more stress on this system. Um, I, it'd be interesting to know if there are some adaptations that come with that as well. Gotcha. That's really interesting. Yeah. Hopefully that all made sense. Might have yeah. talked in a circle. No, I, I think I, I think I'm following. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of sets us up quite nicely to then dive headfirst into like we kind of have we kind of have the the framework we've got the foundation so uh talk us through your study what what were the uh what were the variables you were looking at what what were the methods um right let's dig into it yeah definitely so we wanted to obviously look at power lifters and we wanted to see um what made them different or what what made them different with respect to how could we compare some of these things to uh, their performance as per Wilkes coefficient, um, being our kind of surrogate performance marker or surrogate skill marker. So in order to do that properly, we couldn't just compare uh, within group. We wanted to, to get a good, accurate control. So we found sedentary controls, kind of just students around campus or whoever we could find. And then the power lifters that we recruited were from the, the local Texas area. Um, and we, we set an arbitrary cut point at uh, 300 uh, for our Wilkes coefficient. Um, and there really isn't any solid definition of what makes a, a powerlifter good or not um, when it comes to the Wilkes coefficient. But overall, if you were to, to look up um, kind of meet results, um, you would see that overall, like generally people that are experienced tend to be at least above 300. 
So we set that as an arbitrary cutoff point to make sure that we weren't getting just extremely inexperienced power lifters. Mm-hmm. Um, and because we were using that database, we needed to, or they needed to have competed at least once. So that was kind of our, our threshold there. They needed to be um, actively pa- training in powerlifting. So at least three times a week doing the powerlifting movements. Mm-hmm. They needed to have competed within the last 12 months and they needed to have at least a 300 Wilkes coefficient. Um, in retrospect, I mean, you could have set that higher, but because there isn't really anything that would dictate what a good or a bad powerlifter is, it's, you know, saying 400 might have limited my, my pool quite a bit more. Um, so I just kind of wanted to see if, if some of these adaptations had, had already been incurred by the point that they had that experience enough to um, be higher than 300 and have competed already. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we looked at is it was a cross-sectional study, which means that we didn't tell them to really do anything. We didn't, we didn't have an intervention per se. So we didn't control their training. Uh, we didn't control their diet, although we did have them record their diet. Um, but basically they would come in, uh, after having not trained for 48 hours, just because we know that some of the stuff that we were looking at might be affected in some way or another. Uh, and we took blood from them and we took a, a biopsy and it was a particular method of biopsy. So it's the, the fine needle aspiration method, um, which uses a much smaller, uh, kind of minimally invasive as, as little as minimally invasive as a biopsy can be. Um, from their, their vastus lateralis. And we compared the, uh, some of these markers, and I'll go over the markers in a second, um, to those sedentary controls. Is, um, is that the one that kind of shoots? Yeah. Out? Yeah. Did you ever get to, to see one of those? Oh, yeah. I got to help out with a lot of them. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> it's great. It's fantastic. So, Super cool. I was yeah. the distractor. Oh, nice. Okay. That was so my holding job. Holding on to the foot and, and mm-hmm. asking them how, you know, asking them what they're about to eat later, things yep. like Nice. Trying to tell them jokes and yeah, all yeah. that stuff. Mm-hmm. That was yeah. fun. Brings but I was I was usually not paying attention to them. Like I'm talking to like I'm not looking at their face. I'm like looking down. I'm like this is awesome. That legs yeah. cut open or going in. Yeah, I loved it, man. Yeah, but it's not as evasive as a as a Bergstrom needle. Big they needle. Take a, yeah, you take a scalpel. You go in there. I mean, it's. In terms of the discomfort, it's it's not magnitudes higher than the than the fine needle, mm-hmm. but in terms of of the the soreness that you get afterwards, at least in my own experience, because I've had both done on me, I tried to do uh, a, a glute ham raise on the glute ham raise machine one time after getting a biopsy done with the broken <laughs> needle. That's not happening. That's not fun. Um, I can I can do squats after a fine needle aspiration, but I can't do. I can't do glute ham raises after getting a, Ber- a Bergstrom done. It's horrible. No, I can imagine. I mean, you're like it's cutting no out some steak, man. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, not... with the fine needle, I mean, you can the 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 pros to the the Bergstrom that you get a whole bunch of tissue all at once. Mm-hmm. The cons are that you know you get that big open gaping hole, but with the fine needle method, you just have to go in so many times that. It makes the process go a lot longer than mm-hmm. uh, some people are comfortable with, and especially if they're they're in their head about it, you know. With the Bergstrom needle, it's in and it's out. It's like if you committed to it, by the time that that lidocaine's in your leg and that needle's in your leg, I mean, one and done. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> one and done. Yeah, that's um, hilarious. Yeah. So so some of the markers we looked at. Uh, so we looked at fiber type, um, and it's worth mentioning that we actually didn't do the fiber typing in house. So. Um, with the muscle we used, we uh, actually sent the tissue off to Dr. Andy Galpin's lab. 
Mm -hmm. um, it was a recommendation from, from my advisor, Dr. Bagley, back at SF State. Uh, and Dr. Willoughby was fine with the whole collaboration aspect of it, which is really cool to me because it's like I got to marry two parts of, of, of my grad school experience. Um, so we sent the, the tissue off to them and they did the entire homogenous SDS page where they just basically break the tissue up. Um, and the reason we did the homogenous, not the single fiber that I mentioned way back then is because, because the tissue is so small, it's really difficult to individually tweeze out fibers from it. So that, mm. that is a, a particular, uh, I, I guess you could say a limitation, but I can talk about why it's not a limitation a little bit later on. Mm -hmm. um, so we did that for the fiber typing, which gives us type one, type two A and type two X uh, composition. Um, so it, it doesn't tell us the percentage of fibers per se, but it does tell us. So in this, this bundle of fibers that we mash up, how much of this is type one, how much of this is two A and how much of this is two X. Um, we also looked at uh, muscle total creatine and serum total creatine. And then we also looked at the transporter, the SLC6A8, which is responsible for transporting creatine um, that is either consumed exogenously or produced endogenously into the cell. Um, so one thing I should mention about that is typically what you'll see is that type ones tend to have more of that, that transporter than type two A's um, or type two X's for that regard. Um, and then the last marker that we looked at was uh, creatinine. So if, if anyone's ever um, gotten their blood tested, uh, typically you'll you'll see a creatinine marker, uh, and that's usually used as kind of a surrogate marker for renal function. Um, but in this sense, what we're we're looking at is is in totality of it, it it's a it's a better marker um, as to res with respect to the breakdown of creatine. So it's a it's a metabolite of creatine. Um, and this is just giving us a really good global perspective of what's happening with creatine metabolism. We have blood, we have the transporter, we have it in the muscle, and then we have the breakdown product. Nice. Yeah. So I think that, that that's uh, all the markers that we took. Obviously, we run statistics on that. But then to look at how, in particular, some of these things are affecting Wilkes coefficient, uh, we ran correlations between myosin heavy chain 2A content because we know that relationship with performance and specifically um, like strength athlete performance. And then we looked at the total muscle creatine content and related that to Wilkes coefficient. So those two things in particular. Um, I guess one thing that I totally forgot to mention was that pretty much no female powerlifters have ever been researched ever. So our group was divided. So we had 12 powerlifters. Six of them were males, six of them were females. And these are actually the first six female powerlifters that have ever been researched before. No way. That's awesome, man. Yeah. And it was really cool because we're, I, I don't know if you have subscribed to like this idea, but typically when we think about fiber types, we think that women tend to have a higher um, oxidative fiber content, so more type yeah. one. So I wanted to see, um, can the training kind of overcome that like it did in uh, one of Dr. Andy Galpin's previous research studies in, um, in weightlifters, where they actually showed that the most experienced female weightlifters at the world-class level actually had more type 2A fibers than the, um, than the national level males, which I thought wow. was really cool. Yeah. That's super interesting. Yeah. So we're looking at the, all those relationships. It was, made it very statistically irritating, but... <laughs> But that's because you're the first one doing it. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, let me know next time not to to make it that statistically complicated. <laughs> oh man, yeah, you're blazing the trail. Yeah, I guess that's that's fair. You know, yeah. gotta gotta show some love to the ladies, I guess. So. For sure. No, that's that's cool stuff. So, um, so what what were some of the results? What were some of the conclusions? Yeah. So with the fiber type stuff, we saw that the power lifters had. Uh, higher type 1s and 2As relative to the controls. Um, and we were seeing that, that that relatively higher content was kind of at the expense of 2Xs. So actually only one participant, um, only one male in the in the study had any 2X fibers whatsoever. And he actually had a relatively wow. high percentage of them, it was like 20%, um, but pretty much no other powerlifters had um, any type 2Xs or no, no powerlifters, I should qualify that a little bit better. Um, as opposed to the the control side, I think we had an average of somewhere between 20 and 30 uh, of the two X's. No um, way. That's yeah. so crazy to me. That blows right. my mind. Right, which is exactly, so it, it's counter to what a lot of people would believe, that that general spectrum that people believe you want. If you're powerful, you want two X's, right? So yes. that's not at all the case. Um, only the, these are sedentary controls, I should qualify. So they were sedentary based on the ACSM guidelines. So they were exercising less than than 30 minutes a day, uh, three days a week, three you know last over the last three months. So they were they were very sedentary, um, and they had the highest percentage of type two X's. Wow. Yeah. Um, one really interesting finding was that our females overall, so regardless of group, actually had higher two A content. So already we're kind of challenging some of those beliefs. But the really interesting part of that interpretation is. Was you know so it's it's not just the powerlifting females but it's our females in general, um, and uh, and uh, the the stronger by science group actually did a, an analysis on on this paper in particular, mm -hmm. uh, and and they made a good point. They just mentioned how um, you know we had one male in the powerlifters who kind of threw off some of that two A content because of of that two X that he that two X percentage he had. And then in general, a lot of our males had a, a higher 2X percentage and a lower 2A percentage. So at a, at a group level, it kind of made sense that, um, that the females would have a higher 2A percentage. I don't think there's anything particularly mechanistic about that. Um, if the female powerlifters had a higher content uh, and not the, the controls, we might be able to infer that there was some type of um, of skill level difference between the two. So maybe we didn't control for um, for skill or experience well enough to be able to detect that or, or control for that. But that mm -hmm. wasn't the case. So we kind of think that that's kind of a, a more aberrant finding in that regard. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Why do you think uh, if and this just kind of popped into my head? Why do you think it is that uh, it was thought that women would tend to have a higher type one fiber content. And now that we're getting some data showing that, you know, it's actually type two A, like, do you have some sort of uh, either evolutionary perspective of why that is? Or like, what's the, do you have some sort of theory behind yeah, the rationale a, there? It's a good question. And I, I would be kind of pulling at straws to try to come up with something that's that's coherent. But I mean, evolutionarily speaking, I would assume that that uh, men were were more of the hunters. Um, I think historically, so they would need a, a higher percentage of those those two A fibers 
to be able to chase down prey, things like that, chase down animals in order to hunt them, uh, versus women, uh, historically, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to like cross too many boundaries there, but you know, they're, they're, the survival of our race is pretty much contingent on the existence of, of women. Mm-hmm. Um, so their ability to sustain themselves, I think is related to that, that percentage of type one fibers. Um, okay. at a more mechanistic level, I think that there might be some impacts when it comes to estrogen, um, estrogen being related to, to like oxidative metabolism and metabolism in general. Um, but I've never seen anything relating estrogen levels to, uh, to type one proportion. Um, but you know, if you think about, if I think about my thesis where we looked at a, um, a middle-aged powerlifter who had been on anabolic steroids, he had 79% type twos. Mm -hmm. So one of the highest recorded type twos ever reported. Yeah. That makes me think. So there's, there's definitely a growth capacity aspect of it. Obviously, there's a training capacity portion to that as well. Mm-hmm. But if, if a, a specific type of fiber is going to grow, I think people assume that it's going to be a type 2A. Mm-hmm. So people, people have a, a better association with the growth of type 2As, at least in the acute sense. It seems that at least in the acute sense, type 2A fibers grow uh, faster to make up some of those hypertrophy differences and maybe type ones follow after that. Um, yeah, that was kind of a loose mechanistic interpretation of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have a, a fantastic answer for that cause I've never truly dove deep to try to, to figure that out. So. Yeah. Well, perhaps in the future we'll have a little bit more information about that. And that's one of those things you kind of have to, you gotta, you gotta guess. Because yeah. we don't, there's so much information that we don't have. There's the data is just isn't there. So you, right. kinda, you know, based off what I think about this, maybe it's this is why. So right. but I, we're, I, we're citing studies, like very few studies with uh, a fiber type in females. But I mean, I think if you talk to to any researcher, they wouldn't be scared to admit that we haven't researched a lot of, we haven't had a lot of female subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, comparatively speaking, there aren't many studies out there that are looking to compare men and women, especially when it comes to, to um, uh, you know, like performance metrics or uh, just general comparative means, um, something like what we're doing. Yeah. My, uh, my friend Mandy, who is also... Uh, in the in the Baylor Masters program, um, she just finished up her PhD at uh, Kansas, nice. and she she was looking at uh, uh, motor unit recruitment differences, which we got to talk about a little bit um, when I, when I had her on the podcast. But it's it's one of those things like like you're saying we just don't have a ton of information on on female subjects. Yeah, on female research subjects yet. So, but you know that's changing, which is yeah. great. So yeah. we're starting to get a little bit, you know, here and there, and hopefully over time that'll continue to grow. So we'll have more, um, you know, like uh, what is her name? Oh, I can't think of it right now. Uh, Doctor Stacy Sims, I want to say. Sounds familiar. Anyway, she's she's got a book that uh. It's not the book. She's got a famous saying, and that's basically that women are not small men. Like yeah. there's there's a lot of differences there. So um, until we have the data on it, 
you know, we, we don't know exactly what those differences are. And, you know, that information is kind of useful. It's kind of important. So yeah, I mean, there have been drugs that have been misdosed because the research has been done in, in men. So for sure. Yeah, it's it's definitely an area that at least now people are aware uh, of the, the deficit that exists. So mm -hmm. that's the first step is recognizing that the deficit exists. And now potentially money can go into to avenues of research looking at differences between men and women. Because, I mean, the, the novelty is open, right? You mm -hmm. can literally do any other study that's been done before. How does this affect women, right? Mm -hmm. For sure. That's so true. And the methods that's... are already there for you, basically, if you're picking another study. So yeah. That's the truth. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the practical application. So yeah, for I actually didn't mention uh, the creatine analogs. I didn't talk oh, about. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Let's no, talk I, about I, that. Didn't, I didn't get to that. So um, the creatine analogs, we we didn't see any differences, which is really mm. interesting to me. Um, so we didn't see any differences between genders, between groups, when it came to total creatine, serum creatine. Um, creatinine, we didn't see any differences when it came to transporter, which I thought was really interesting because some of these things are supposed to be related to the fiber type. So creatine content tends to be higher in type 2 fibers and fast twitch fibers, but yet we didn't see that. Hmm. Um, creatine transporter content tends to be higher in type 1 fibers, but even though the power lifters had a higher proportion of type 1s, we didn't see a difference there. Um, so a lot of these things were really interesting, and uh, I guess I guess that leads me into one of the limitations or one of the future prospects for it would be, I would want to look at this at a single fiber level where we take a larger sample, and did we potentially dilute some of our findings because we were using a homogenous kind of a ground up sample? What if we took individual two A fibers and looked at the 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 um, the creatine content there, mm -hmm. or the the phosphocreatine content, the total creatine content? Would that have been different? What if we took the individual myosin heavy chain one fibers of the type one fibers and looked at the order in that regard? So, yep. Very cool. So, for power lifters and non power lifters, uh, you know the spectrum of athletes. What's what's the takeaway? What can what can the strength coach? What can a kinesiologist? What can uh, yeah. What, yeah. What's the takeaway here? Yeah. Um, so our our correlations didn't pan out either. So our type two A's and our creatine content had no significant correlation uh, with with Wilkes coefficient. So specifically for for power lifters, sorry, um, I would I would say that number one, we can tell that they're not molecular molecular scale predictors of of powerlifting performance. So. I don't think that people that are powerlifters need to worry so much about their fiber type. I, I think that it's probably more important for um, you to not necessarily pick a program based on what, what you think your fiber type is going to change, mm. uh, change to. Um, also, because there were no differences in creatine content, I think that, that some people will talk about, you know, this person's a creatine uh, responder, this person's not a creatine responder. Um, and typically that non-responder is, is someone who tends to have more cre basal creatine than uh, the average person or, or some people that may have a lower level. Mm -hmm. So I think that, that in that regard, you know, you shouldn't necessarily be trying to train to increase those types of things either. Um, but it is worth noting that supplementation, creatine supplementation is probably one of the, the most empirically backed uh, types of supplementation in sports, sports nutrition. So 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that may be a means of, of increasing strength there, but I wouldn't necessarily say that there's a tight correlation with the amount of creatine that someone has and their powerlifting performance. Mm-hmm. So I think that if we were able to uh, look at something like training capacity, that might be a different story. Um, same thing with, with fiber type. There might be individualized responses to how someone reacts to training given their fiber type. Um, there might be individualized responses to a certain type of, of training, a certain rep range, a certain uh, set number, um, you know, all these different modalities, cluster sets, things like that, depending mm-hmm. on, on some of these molecular scale predictors, um, like creatine content, like uh, fast switch fiber content. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I don't think that, that uh, Wilkes coefficient and these, these fiber type and creatine content are going to be... Um, very significantly correlated together or they're not so gotcha so this uh in the realm of endurance athletics the the idea of of it's everybody wants to know their vo2 max right it's it's the number right Right. and it was you know when i was in college studying x-phys like i wanted to you know, I wanted to, be, to get the VO2 max test. I wanted to know what my VO2 was. I was a pretty elite middle distance runner. And, you know, sure enough, I had an elite VO2 max score, right? Yeah. Or, or yeah. number. And it's, it's one of those things that, like, everybody wants to know it. And then there's some people who base their whole training program around what, what that number is. Right. Like, that's, that's the number that they use. Um, and it was... It was actually my college coach who was like not concerned with having anybody on the team do these tests to figure out what the number was. He was like, uh, if you run fast, then it's going to run fast for in, yeah. for endurance, run fast for a long time. You know, if you've got a fast 5K or a fast 8K or a fast 10K, you're going to have a pretty high VO2. Like it's a cool number, but I can't he didn't find that it was useful to like to know exactly what that number was. In other words, it didn't dictate the way that he was planning out his training. Um, So do you think that knowing your muscle fiber type and maybe knowing your, your create muscle creating, you know, content, is it sort of the same thing where it's like, if you're training a certain way, if you're doing certain things, then your muscle fiber type and the creatine content will follow and not kind of the other way around. Like you should dictate your training based off what these numbers are, or you should just, if you're a power lifter, you get strong mm-hmm. and your body will adapt in whatever way it, it, it finds to be the most effective based off your training. Does that make sense? What yeah, I'm I, think that, I think that latter thing really resonates really well. So, so focusing not so much on trying to improve the 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 kind of abstract values so your vo2 max or your your fiber type which is even more difficult to try to figure out because you have to get a biopsy and all of that stuff mm-hmm. but but trying to 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 get stronger trying to get the the more objective outcomes that you can get for your sport um you know trying to increase your one rm is is probably going to be that's the only thing that really matters in powerlifting like mm-hmm. no one cares about what your your type two fiber content is, how much creatine you got. You're being judged on how much you can lift on the platform, right? Right. Um, it's really cool to be able to to profile people, and that's kind of the the downfall of of fiber type research 
is especially because we're looking at athletes and we're cross-sectionally analyzing them. I mean, we can see that these people have a certain percentage of type 2A fibers, and we can say that, well, yeah, like in, like in, um, in uh, Dr. Galpin's weightlifter paper, he saw that the, the more elite, um, the world-class level weightlifters, they had a higher percentage of those 2A fibers. But that isn't the end-all be-all, right? That doesn't necessarily mean like, oh, I need to, to have as, as many 2A fibers as possible, or that may not mean, or I would assume that it doesn't mean that the best powerlifter in the world is going to have the highest amount of 2A fibers or the, uh, the highest muscle total creatine content. Mm -hmm. Right. It's, it's probably going to be something uh, it's going to be a, a combination of factors. Those might contribute toward it in, towards it in, in some very small way. Mm -hmm. um, but overall, it's going to be some of those other things that I talked about before. So it's going to be, you know, your limb lengths, your individual leverages, things like that. Um, it's going to be your your recovery capacity, which, you know, is, is not is multifactorial. It's not going to just be related to your fiber type. It's not just going to be related to, to creatine content. It's not going to just be related to a lot of people are looking at 23 and me right now and they're looking at their alpha actin in three. I did that and I'm the I'm the recessive gene like all the way. So I'm like, oh man, does that mean that I shouldn't be powerlifting anymore? It's like, no, <laughs> I, I can still get better, right? Mm -hmm. I may not be, it's unlikely for me to be a, a world champion at that, but I think I knew that already. If I'm, you know, it, if I'm not a close to being a world champion already, you're probably not going to be there, right? Especially 28 <laughs> years old. Um, yeah. yeah. So I think I think that's really cool, and and I think it's also really cool. I forgot to mention that, um, you know, like the female aspect of we talked about that too. That, you know, you're not pigeonholed into a particular uh, phenotype based on based on your gender, right? So mm -hmm. we we showed that um, females can with training they can pretty much have the same content of, of type two fibers, uh, as, as males can, um, you know, with, with specific types of training. So I think that that's, that's really important to know that you can kind of equalize the playing field. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, after talking about how fiber type doesn't really matter, but I mean, that's just talking about how, uh, you know, the females don't need to be treated drastically different when it comes to the training stimulus that you're giving them. Uh, a lot of the same, a lot of the same principles, still apply you just have to tweak them a little bit more based on that the the individual person's i, I would say size is going to be a, a better predictor of that mm -hmm. right so maybe you don't give uh or a lot of the research is actually so showing that you can give females a little bit more volume um than than males because they do tend to recover a little bit faster and i'm not based on the research that we've done and based on the research that that andy galpin's group has done i wouldn't say that that's mediated in large part by fiber type Mm -hmm. wow. wow that i just thought of another thing um another variable that a lot of endurance runners like to look at is lactate threshold oh and, yeah like i know plenty of people who probably had a higher vo2 max than me and may even had a higher lactate threshold than me mm -hmm. and i'd still beat them in a race yeah just because at the end of the day those numbers are, are great and they give you a, you know, a, let's say a range for your potential, but sport is all about competition. Some, yeah. Sometimes you just got to find a way to gut it out. And yeah. uh, I think a lot of times some of the best athletes when it comes to performance may not always have the best numbers when it comes to, uh, you know, these, these research me measures or these variables that we can that we can test, um, you know, like 
the the fastest sprinter is not usually the strongest right person on the track you know what i mean so like there's um all these numbers are are good and they're really cool but yeah. i think uh sometimes people get so fixated on on you know stuff that they think is the end all be all and Right. You make maybe a good point. It's not. You make a good point there because it's. I, I I think there is some value. Obviously, there's some value in looking at some of these things, looking at lactate threshold, looking at VO2. But when that becomes the end all be all, right? We might need it to be at a at a certain uh, kind of minimal threshold in order to make sure that we're achieving something. Mm-hmm. But I mean, even even in powerlifting performance, you know, like the best deadlifter uh, isn't always going to be the one who has the best total at the end of the day, right? Mm-hmm. You can be fantastic at deadlift and you can suck at the other two and you're not going to win at the end of the day right it's it's a combination of all these factors Um, it always blows my mind when i see someone that never takes the best they never take a medal in individual lifts but when they get the total they're just all around good at it right Mm -hmm. so kind of mediocrity in all three ends up being fantastic over uh yeah so i mean that's kind of a um an abstract way of kind of looking at that but mm-hmm. I think that, you know, we want to we want to focus on getting using the tools that are available to us um, and getting the available data and making those informed decisions to be able to create something that's more comprehensive by the end and not just one thing. For sure. No, I think I think that's it, man, for sure. Yeah. Um, so. How can people do your work? How can they reach out to you if they have questions? Yeah, I, I I just like talking about research and powerlifting as, as much as I, I can. So um, if people want to, to reach out to me, um, Instagram is a good place. So my Instagram handle is, uh, is stretch underscore RX, RX like prescription. Uh, it's a weird story behind that name, but <laughs> I've kept it for a long time and my wife won't let me change it. So uh, <laughs> Um, so that's probably the best way. I don't, I know I need to get a Twitter. I keep hearing from people how Twitter is such a great way to like promote your research and all that. But you know, when I have, when I have more of it, maybe I'll go out there and do that. Otherwise I'll just rely on my friends to do that. Uh, <laughs> other than that, uh, I guess email, but Instagram, I, I spend way too much time on Instagram. It's probably like my, my social media vice. So that gotcha. is, is definitely the way. Sweet. Well, I'll include that in the show description so that everybody can can follow you and reach out to you. Um, Perfect. As long as they, you know, didn't, I didn't lose them already. So (laughs) (laughs) I can't guarantee you're going to have like, you know, Joe Rogan level, you know, followers after this, but, um, you know, you might pick up a few. If I'm going to be on Joe Rogan, it's probably not going to be to talk about my research. It's going to be talk about DMT or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Do you study that? (laughs) <laughs> oh, well, so, interestingly <laughs> enough, I actually published a, a, a really small review on psychedelics for performance. No way. Yeah, no one, no one reads it. I, um, I got, I got asked. Don't to... tell me too much. Cause we're going to have to do an episode just about that. Cause oh. I, I'm very interested in that. Okay. So, uh, the only thing I'll tell you is that I actually got, uh, I got a call to, for an interview, um, with, uh, this one reporter from Bryant Gumbel's Real Sports. I was like, why are you calling me? Like, I haven't researched this stuff at all. <laughs> it was for a public health class. I just had to talk about something I was interested in. And the, the topic was the decriminalization of psilocybin mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And I just went off on it. Like whenever I write a review for class, I'm like, if I'm going to write a review, I'm going to put effort into it. 
you know, even if it's if it, even if it's total garbage, I'm just going to put a bunch of effort into it. And it's like the only paper that exists in the literature that talks about psychedelics for performance. Wow. That's so crazy because like Rogan talks about it all the time about uh, all these uh, all these people in Silicon Valley and then all yeah. these MMA fighters who are microdosing. Yeah. And that's you know, right exposed to it because I my wife and I lived in the Bay Area so I had I had a I, I was a trainer for three years which I didn't mention before but mm-hmm. um, you know that one of my clients was really into that stuff and it was super super intriguing to me so I, I did some reading on it and you know California man so yeah yeah that's yeah Let, we're we're gonna have to do an episode about that because that's yeah. that sounds incredibly interesting to me well, I, I don't do research in it, but I just like talking about it. So we can. We can <laughs> well, we're going to talk there. about it. Yes. yes. Awesome. Sweet. Well, uh, dude, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This has been excellent. Yeah, of course. Um, I've really enjoyed it. I've, I've learned quite a bit, especially a whole bunch of stuff about Type 2X that I thought I knew. Yeah. That now I'm like, oh, who, who cares about Type 2X? I don't care. Oh, <laughs> uh, what's what I learned by this is like the first ever podcast that I've done with someone. So I, I thank you for this opportunity because it's been great to watch myself like stumble my own words in, uh, <laughs> in like multiple times. Where I'm like, you asked me for the results of the study, and then I forgot to talk about this, and then I forgot to talk about that, and I'm like, well, I guess I gotta re-mention that real quick. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's the nice thing about this. Like, there's no time limit. Like, we can. We can go back. We can. Yeah. We you can, can add to out it. all the parts where I make myself sound like an idiot. <laughs> sounds good to me. I try to do as little editing as possible. So <laughs> I don't. I honestly don't think I'm gonna have to do too much here. You know, like that sounds good. Yeah, man. You said ATPase. So yeah, that I'm was my one point of the day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not editing out anything. This That's is awesome. this has been awesome, man. Alrighty, y'all. Thank you so much for watching and listening. Be sure to. Uh, Go follow Steven, and uh, if you have any questions for him, definitely reach out to him, and stay tuned for next week's episode, and also stay tuned for when we get him back on to talk about some more fun stuff. All righty. Adios. Stuff.